As you can see, Pastor Ron and Kay are not with us this morning. I'm grateful to Tracy Harms, who's teaching Children's Church for us this morning. As well as you'll notice in your bulletin that we have a special speaker with us today. Pastor Ron mentioned that Gary Stewart is going to speak to us this morning. Gary is a, is a former a member here at Richland or a tender here with us. And uh, then left and went to school, got married, moved to Canada for a while. Nova Scotia, I believe. Is that right? What is it? Farther east, even. Way, way out there. North and east. A long ways away. Um, in fact, I think they went by half hours. Uh, had a half hour time change from... So it's way out there. Um, but Gary now is back in the States and uh, is at school in, in Kentucky. And uh, he is home for Christmas break and has been here for a couple weeks. And, and uh, Pastor Ron and I connected together and decided that it would be great to have Gary share with us this week as Pastor Ron and Kay are in Indiana um, at Hannah's uh, basketball uh, parents weekend for her basketball team. And uh, they're out there. And so Gary is going to share with us this morning. He's in First Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read from there together. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's my delight to be with you this morning. I'm glad for this opportunity to bring the Word of God to you. This church has been very important to me and my family for many years, and it's a delight to be with you this morning. As Jason mentioned, Amy and I just completed six years of pastoral ministry in Newfoundland, which is close to Nova Scotia. <laughs> and it is, that's right, two and a half hours uh, ahead of central time. But we've just relocated in June to Louisville, where I'm studying a uh, degree in theology, which I hope will open up a door for teaching in a college or seminary setting. When Pastor Ron asked if I could fill in this Sunday, I told him I was a little rusty, as I haven't uh, preached since uh, June. But in a former life, it seems, so long ago now in Newfoundland, I, I used to have this privilege regularly. But it's great to be with you. Nonetheless, you are a very special people and a special church. I hope you have your Bible open to what Jason just read in 1 Timothy 3. I want you to be able to see and look at the words that we'll be talking about this morning in verses 14 through 16. 1 Timothy is an important book for the church. It's one of the great letters written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. And in verses 14 and 15, Paul tells us why he has written this letter. He says again in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress 
of the truth. He's writing this letter so the believers would know how they are to behave or how they are to conduct themselves in the church. He wants them to know how they as individuals ought to live out their lives in the church. He prefers to come to them in person. He hopes to come to them soon and give this instruction in person. But he says, in case he's delayed, I've written so that you will know how to conduct yourselves in the church. Now, the kind of conduct he has in mind, the kind of behavior he has in mind, he wants he wants them to to think and act in in a whole all encompassing way of thinking and and enacting. You can see just by looking back at what he's written. So if you look at chapter one, look at what he has written. He has written to them about how they are to behave or conduct themselves regarding chapter one, how they think about the law. And more importantly, how they think about the gospel. And he wants them to understand in chapter one the the power of false teaching and to be on guard as a church. And when you go to chapter two, he goes on. He wants them to understand how they are to behave and conduct themselves regarding godliness, regarding prayer, regarding worship. He wants them to know how to conduct themselves distinctly as men and as women in chapter two, as godly men and godly women. And then in chapter 3, he wants them to know what kind of overseers, what kind of spiritual overseers and leaders they're to set apart in the church. All of these things. In all of these areas, he tells us, in verse 15, he has written, so they would know how to behave in the household of God. And you see in verse 15, these three wonderful phrases in a row strung together. These three phrases How to conduct yourselves in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is what the church is. If they are to behave properly in the church, they must know what the church is. And so in this little verse, he has put in these three descriptive phrases to describe to them what the church is. Behaving rightly in the church involves understanding what the church is. What you're a part of. And these three phrases, Paul gives an important description. These are, these are important descriptions. This is an important verse for us. We're going to look at each one of these phrases in a moment. But first, I want to just mention to you why I chose this verse, why I chose this topic. I think this whole topic of the local church is an important one in our day. I think it's a neglected topic in our day. And many believers have not given much thought about the church. You do it every week. You check it off. But what is the church? And many believers have not given much thought to what the Bible says the church is. Some in our day view the church primarily as an agent of social reform and social change. It's perhaps an institution of charity and benevolence primarily perhaps solely in the eyes of some. Others see it as the purpose of the church primarily as a civic one. The church is to produce good citizens who are virtuous and who get along, who are properly socialized for public and civic life. For others, the church is an agent of tradition and respectability to give stability to society, to promote respectability and honor in terms of life and death. 
and marriage. Some see it merely as a place of social networking, a place to meet friends, to make business acquaintances. Others view the church as an extended evangelistic campaign, an extended public rally for the gospel. Others, and I think many believers in our day, view the church solely from the perspective of their own individual needs. The church exists for me. It exists for my spiritual growth, my benefit, the furtherance of my faith, and when it ceases to meet my needs, I part ways with it. After all, they reason God works at the individual level. God works at the level of the individual heart. God only cares about the individual in salvation, individual growth, and individual witness, and individual godliness. And if the individual is what matters to God, maybe the church is not necessary at all. Maybe some people need it. Maybe there are some people who need the church. But perhaps some can do just as well with TV preachers and internet sermons and books. After all, if God cares about the individual, maybe the church is not very important after all. Maybe some of you have thought like this yourselves. We as evangelicals, rightly so, know that God saves. He deals with people as individuals. That's at the foundation of our faith. You don't become a Christian by coming to church. You, you have an individual work of God in your lives. But because we focus on this work, we tend to neglect what God thinks about the local church. We know the church is called the bride of Christ. We know it's called the body of Christ. But this verse maybe hasn't stood out to you before. I want to look at these three descriptors as Paul describes here the church. These three phrases. And we'll take them right in order. So the first one you see there in verse 15. Paul calls the church the household of God. The household of God. Think about the church now. He calls it the household of God. God has a household. He has a special family. And this family is composed of all who put their hope and trust in Jesus. And all who believe in Christ are adopted into this household, this family If you believe in Christ, you are adopted into a family relationship with God Almighty. One with another. Part of the same family. He has given us the right to become the children of God. And all who are saved are in this family. Now this has implications for us. If the church is a household, if the church is a family then church involvement is not primarily something that you just check off. It's not primarily a a matter of attendance and activities. It's a matter of belonging to a network of relationships, family-like relationships of loyalty and affection and camaraderie and respect. If you look at chapter 5, just go two chapters Um, forward to chapter 5 at the first two verses he expands on this when he says that one in the church should treat verse 1 older men as fathers younger men as brothers older women as mothers younger women as sisters treat each other as members 
of a family because the church is the household of God. Healthy church involvement extends to so much beyond mere attendance at corporate gatherings. It involves living out your life together as a household of God. Those in the church should, should strive to have their lives so intertwined with each other that, that there's so much more interaction far beyond the formal programs and gatherings of the church. So when you come in on Sunday morning, remember that the local church is a family. It's your family, a household of which you're a part. Don't rush in only to check it off and rush out again. But stay and build up your household relationships with other believers. If, if you were to consider a family, and if its only interaction that it had with one another was to hastily come to the dinner table when the dinner bell is rung, to quickly eat their meals, check it off, and to quickly leave the table as soon as they were done eating, you would say that there's something wrong with that family. The family is dysfunctional. And yet, so too it is with the church. If you're a believer, then you're part of the household of God, it says. And you have family privileges, family obligations, family relationships that you should pursue. Of course, this family dynamic is a major part of the church's witness. It's corporate witness. The world is full of broken and hurting families. And yet the church as a family speaks a message of hope to aching souls who are longing for a place to belong, to be nurtured, to be accepted. If the church would shine its light most brightly, it must strive to live up to this title. It is the household of God. So think about the implications that has now for you. This is your family. You are a part of the household of God. Build up these relationships and treat one another as members of your family. Secondly, let's go to the second phrase. He goes on, he says, The church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Now this is point number two, church of the living God. Now this phrase, I think, has three important truths in it. Three truths in this, this simple phrase. First, look at this word church. This word church, in the original, carries the idea of being called out. Ecclesia. Being called out. And that's what the church is. The church is a subset of people who have been called out from the world. A, a people distinct from the world. Separated from the world unto God. The church is a distinct people with a distinct calling made up of people who are not of this world but have been called out of it in their hearts, in their affections, in their hopes, in pursuits and loves. They've been called out, given a special destiny, a special identity in the eyes of God. Secondly, the word church carries with it the idea of being an assembly. This word church has the idea of being an assembly connected with it. It's used at times, uh, it's in the parallel word kahal in the Old Testament, used to denote a gathering or an assembly of people. 
We know it's of the nature of the church to assemble. That's what we do as a church. We get together. We assemble. And the writer of Hebrews recognizes how important this is. You'll remember, don't forsake the assembling together. Don't forsake the church assembly together. When you come together as a church, you make up more than the sum total of you as individuals. When the church gathers, it is more than just a collection of solitary individuals. It is now an assembly, a kahal, a church. And this assembly is a holy and sacred assembly. It's very unique when you assemble. And the third thing we see in this phrase is the church is called the assembly of the living God. The church of the living God. This is the third thing unique about this phrase. When you meet together as a church, as an assembly, the living God is with you in a special and unique way. No, God is in heaven. That's true. God is everywhere. That's true. God is here in a special way. When you assemble, when you gather together, you know from Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. I'm, I'm there with you when you assemble in a special way. You know also we are being built up like living stones into a spiritual temple, a place where God by His Spirit dwells in a unique and special way. God dwells in a heavenly temple, but when we gather, when we assemble as a church, we are an expression of that temple on earth. And He dwells with us in a special way, a special way to convict, to bless, to encourage, to console, to comfort. He comes powerfully when you assemble, when you gather, and when you interact with each other. This is one reason why, why TV preachers, internet sermons, books, they all have their place. But they do not replace, they cannot replace the local church. This is one thing that makes the church unique is an assembly, a church of the living God. And God dwells with His people when they assemble. The church is more than an organization. It is a spiritual organism. And there is a living God who lives and dwells with His people. So that if we're not grieving the Holy Spirit, there should be a sense when, when, this, when the church gathers, like in 1 Corinthians 14, that our, in our gatherings, God is really among us. 1 Corinthians 14:25 When the unbeliever comes in there should be this sense God is here God is among them The church is the church of the living God what a privilege to be in the church those who make up the temple of God the spiritual dwelling place of his people so we've seen the church as a family, the household of God. We've seen it's the church of the living God, the holy assembly, where God comes in a special way. And number three, the church is called here a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. The first two phrases tell us what the church is. This tells us what the church does. Do you see that? The first two phrases, what the church is. This one now tells us what the church does, it's a functional description. 
I'm not sure what translation you have. Some, some translations read a pillar and ground of the truth or a pillar and foundation of the truth or a pillar and support of the truth. The imagery is clear either way. A pillar holds the roof up and a foundation or a support, a buttress, either way it's holding the walls up. So, so the church is to hold up the truth. Now, the truth doesn't need to be propped up as if it is deficient. We don't have to apologize for the truth. We, we don't have to prop it up or defend the truth because it's deficient. But there's a picture here that the church is to be that which holds up the truth in our world for the world to hear and to know. The church is to bear the weight of the truth in the world. It's to hold up the weight of the truth for the world to see, like a foundation or like a pillar, keeping it from collapsing, crumbling. We, we see from this phrase that the church is to be about the business of bearing the weight of truth in our world. This is its role. This is its function. This is its job. It is to bear the weight of truth in this world, to hold it up so that it might stand in the presence of men, that it might be seen. The truth is to be lifted high that it might not be ignored. It's to, to stand firm and strong in holding truth up, lest the truth of God crumble, disappear, fall into oblivion, and be forgotten in the memories of men. The church is to preserve the truth, to proclaim the truth, to live out the truth, is to be governed and moved and motivated by truth, is to be teaching truth and proclaiming truth and sharing truth and defending truth and being driven by truth so that the truth of God might stand, it might visibly stand in our world. You can see in verse 16 what truth he has in mind. He, he goes on in verse 16. There is a connection here. He, he's telling them the truth he has in mind. He, we see it's the, the apostolic truth of Jesus. He, he says in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is a likely a traditional form of truth, either a hymn or a recitation of some form. The apostolic, orthodox truth of Jesus is what is to be upheld. That's, that's why he says in verse 16, Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. The truth of Christ is great indeed. And the truth of Christ is a mystery. It was kept hidden for so many ages. It's still hidden from so many minds and so many hearts. Because it's the true way of godliness. He calls it the mystery of godliness. The gospel showing us how to live, how to be right with God. Because it is great, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Therefore, the church must stand as a pillar and buttress of the truth, of this truth. It is great indeed. 
when you look at the next few verses, continue on the train of thought in chapter chapter 4, we see a reminder why the church must be faithful to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. He goes on and talks about false teachers. Many are being deceived in the world. Many are being misled, even from within the church. People are being misled and deceived by false teachers, by a false gospel, a false hope. Even in, in this chapter, a false form of godliness. And yet amid the darkness, amid the confusion that is in our world, the loud and conflicting voices which seduce and, and deceive, God has established the church to be an agent of light, an agent of truth. It's the church that is the pillar standing strong and tall in our world, holding up the truth in a confused and chaotic world. God cares about His truth. He works out redemption by His truth. He overcomes the lies and curse of the evil one by the truth. He brings life and light to darken hearts by the truth. We, we see this again and again in Scripture. God, God is said to regenerate and convert people by the truth, to bring them into salvation. James 1.18 He brought us forth by the word of truth. God converts by the word of truth. We know that God deepens Christians in their spiritual life by the truth. Sanctify them by the truth. They will know the truth. The truth will set them free. Truth, truth, truth. The church is to be about the truth because God saves and redeems by the truth. Truth is at the beginning and truth brings it to completion. The church is to be about the truth. And even though this is such a strong theme in Scripture, so many churches are saying the truth should be minimized because the truth is at times unpopular. The truth is not politically correct. We believe in one God. We believe in one way to God. We believe in one book. This is a narrow way. The, the, the truth is not politically correct. And there are many who are saying we need to minimize the truth. And the church should instead be a friendly, nice, comfortable place to come where people just come and encouraged. They're never offended or challenged. Many are saying the truth should be minimized. We should discard whatever truths might be offensive. And yet the Word of God is clear. Speak the truth in love. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to be, as a church, the pillar and support of the truth. It's clear from this passage, I hope it's clear to you, that the church has a calling to stand like a pillar amidst skepticism and confusion and despair. If the church doesn't do it, who will? If the church fails to be the pillar and support of the truth, who will? The media, the schools, the politicians, who will do it if not the church? 
This is its role. This is its calling. And what an important job God has given it to do. You as a church have been faithful for many years to do these things. One of my earliest memories of this church, I think I was at age four or five, I was in Joy Palmer's Bible School class in the room which is now Pastor Ron's office. And I remember I cried the first day I came to your church (laughs) at the age of four. And yet I remember, I remember many years of coming and hearing the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ. Paul has written to the church these things so that they would know how they ought to behave, how they ought to conduct themselves as a church. The household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And as we conclude this morning, I want, I want us to hear what Paul is saying. I want these phrases to be impressed upon you. I want to call you to value and treasure the church that God has made you a part of. The local church is a corporate display of God's glory, a witness to his glorious truth. It's very important to God. The church is a place where God comes and dwells. It is a holy assembly, a special place for the gracious presence of the living God. It is a family. It is a household. And it's been given a purpose, a job to do, to corporately bear witness to the truth. Truth from the pulpit, truth in the classrooms, truth amongst each other through encouraging words of truth, and truth to the world. God has given you a wonderful church. A wonderful church. I hope you value it. I hope you love it. I hope you are willing to sacrifice and yield yourself and devote yourself to its building up. God has given you a wonderful church. See it as God sees it. It is the household of God. The church of the living God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray together, shall we? Dear Lord, we join our hearts together in praying for the church. We praise and thank you for establishing this church family right here to be a pillar of the truth in this place. We thank you for this assembly and together we pray that when this church assembles, you would be pleased to dwell in its midst in a powerful and gracious way. Please knit this church family closer and closer together. Bless this people, Lord, with your spirit and keep it faithful to the truth of God as it's revealed in your word. Bless this church, we pray. Expand and increase the circle of worshipers here. Bless its leaders and make its ministries means of truth and grace to those who are here and those who are yet to come. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.
I'm grateful this morning for Gary and for his his words, for the truth that he communicated through Scripture this morning. Matthew and the worship team are going to lead us this morning as we sing about the truth that manifested itself in flesh. As we sing about Christ who made a way for us to see that truth, to understand it, for it to be real to us. The redemption that we have through Christ. Stand with me this morning as Matthew leads us. this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.